The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Josh Zabika. He is an associate professor of sociology and director of the Prison Agriculture Lab at Colorado State University. He is the author of Food Justice Now, Deepening the Roots of Social Struggle, and he is a co-editor of A Recipe for Gentrification, Food, Power, and Resistance in the City. His current research and the subject of our conversation today focuses on the history and contemporary practice of penal agriculture and how this can help to challenge structural inequalities in the criminal punishment system. The Prison Agriculture Lab is a collaborative space for inquiry and action that focuses on agricultural practices within the criminal punishment system and the lab's research and advocacy focus is on place, power, inequality, and resistance. He is the co-author of a recent paper titled Food and Carcerality, From Confinement to Abolition. It was published in Food and Foodways in 2022. He also teaches courses on the sociology of food and agriculture, food justice, social movements, and social problems. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Melinda. It's really an honor to be back with you. Well, I love the work that you're doing because it is so unique and I think so important in today's society where we see so much exploitation and repression. I really wanted to bring your voice back specifically to talk about food and carcerality and your prison agricultural lab. So first, tell me, how did you become interested in the topic of food and prison? So it goes back to my work with a food justice organization called Planting Justice based in Oakland, California. And I worked with this organization on their board of directors for many years. And this organization works with formerly incarcerated people doing food justice work. So everything from urban agriculture and community organizing around food to food literacy and education and providing living wage work for formerly incarcerated people doing this kind of work. And so in my interactions with formerly incarcerated people over many years, I started to think more critically about what did food and agriculture look like more broadly in the criminal punishment system. And and I saw what one really creative intervention looks like and the way in which you could merge abolitionist and food justice commitments and restorative justice commitments together. But I guess I started to become a little more critical of what I learned more broadly was taking place. And so that inspired a whole new set of projects to systematically catalog and explore just what was taking place when it comes to cultivating plants and raising animals behind bars. So I believe you mentioned that there are over 600 prisons with prisoners who participate in some form of agriculture. What percentage of the total is that? So 
In our data set, which is the first that's ever been created to our knowledge of this kind, there are around 1,100 state-run adult correctional facilities that are in this data set. And so it's 660 or so that have agricultural activities of some kind. If you look a little more broadly at the state prison system, there are around 1,150 adult state prisons. So that's just to kind of give you a sense of the concentration of agricultural activities is actually quite high. And and the way in which we define that is, I, I want to be clear, we're looking at four broad categories. So animal agriculture, so this could be everything from livestock operations and beekeeping and poultry, crops and silviculture, so this is sort of farm-scale vegetable and field crops, nut production and harvesting, range and pasture land. We also include food processing and production. So this is a transformation of raw agricultural materials into different kinds of food products. And then lastly, we include horticulture and landscaping. So this is like gardens and greenhouses, landscaping operations and landscaping training. And so we're looking at a huge array of agricultural practices within prisons beyond, I think, what people might typically consider a prison farm where people are just out in the fields. It turns out there's quite a bit more going on. Right. So I'm trying to put myself in a prisoner's shoes and imagine a life that is largely surrounded by noise, concrete, and steel, and light, artificial light. And I'm thinking that if I had an opportunity to participate in anything that connected me to the soil or nature, that would be beneficial to my spirit. Do you find that to be the case? I think it really varies. And and it varies on the conditions under which somebody finds themselves working in the soil or working with animals. And I want to be careful here because I think that on an individual level, there are absolutely benefits to engaging in agricultural practices. But when looked at in the aggregate, one of the questions that I've been asking with my collaborators, especially in the prison agriculture lab, is more broadly the disciplinary purpose behind having agricultural activities and how does it actually reinforce the power of the criminal punishment system to be the site within which we are even talking about using agriculture for some sort of, say, rehabilitative or reformative purpose. And so what, what I have found is that there are four main reasons for agriculture. There's financial reasons, so cost savings or feeding incarcerated people. There's idleness reduction reasons, so you know, putting people to work so that they're not just sitting in their cells all day. There are training purposes, so this could be for educational or vocational reasons. In the minority of cases, this maybe speaks a little bit more to what you're talking about. There are more reparative kinds of reasons. And so this could be therapy. And this is what's kind of officially stated by prisons and prison authorities in terms of what we have found in our work. And so I think that there are times when incarcerated folks are finding that it's much better to be outside than being behind bars all day. But for so many incarcerated people working in agriculture, they're forced to work. Most state prison systems require work. And so people don't have a choice in that respect. 
And even when it comes to educational programming, it's oftentimes required that you have to be involved in some kind of educational programming. And so the question of choice becomes really important here and in the way in which that's constrained in the prison system. And so that informs the experience then that people have when it comes to growing food and raising animals. The other thing I'll just note is that there's a recent report that came out from the ACLU about prison labor, and a lot's been coming out on prison labor recently, but prisoners are paid cents on the hour for all of their work. And in six or seven different states, prisoners are paid absolutely nothing, and they're required to work. And so those are the kinds of conditions I think it's really important to understand agriculture within, that we need to sort of question some of the framing that's put out by prison authorities themselves and the claims that they're making about the benefits of what they're doing and take a step back and look to see whether or not those claims are A, true, but B, maybe what's more fundamentally driving why we have agriculture of any kind in prisons at this point. Right. I absolutely hear what you're saying. And it sounds like, on the one hand, it could be therapeutic, it could be beneficial. And on the other hand, we could be looking at just another form of plantation labor. Absolutely. I don't think plantation labor's ever gone away. It just looks different in the way in which we talk about it changes. And it fits the sort of language of the times. And you see this even in the way in which different departments of corrections change the name of their organization. You know, maybe they'll add rehabilitation to their name or mm-hmm. some other kind of word in order to signal that, that maybe they're doing something that's more beneficial than they did in the past. And it's a way of gaining legitimacy um, right. in the eyes of the public and, and in the eyes of politicians, especially given the incredible costs of our system of incarceration there always is a need to come up with a way to keep the system in place. Right. Well, I love the language that you use. You say criminal punishment system, and I had to stop and look at that again because we're so used to reading criminal justice system. And I think that the way you phrase this really gives us pause to think about what is really going on. And I do pay very close attention to the signs that are on state-run facilities, and oftentimes the word corrections is there. And you're right, the word rehabilitation. And I often wonder just what kind of rehabilitation and corrections are going on and how are they happening? So I think that your prison agriculture lab is just uniquely and critically important right now. I want to describe it a little bit. Of course, we'll provide a link for our listeners. It's prisonagriculture.com. But I want to talk about some of the unique areas you have on this site. So the one thing that you have that I thought was interesting was you have a space for story maps, and they are in the process of being developed and posted. What will those story maps include? Uh, Thanks. That's a great question. So my co-author and collaborator, Terry Chenault, who's a professor of geography at Colorado State University, we have a forthcoming paper called Prison Agriculture in the United States, Racial Capitalism and the Disciplinary Matrix of Exploitation and Rehabilitation, and it's coming out in the journal Agriculture and Human Values. And and this paper reports on all of this research that we've been conducting over the past two years And it speaks to some of the trends in prison agriculture in the United States. And so the story map is going to be 
translating in a more interactive form what we've been finding. So the map will entail a historical timeline of prison and agriculture in the United States, and then it will show some maps that identify where prison agriculture is taking place and what kind is taking place. And then it's organized around the, what we call the drivers of prison agriculture. So what I was talking about before, the, the financial, the reparative, the idleness reduction, and so on. Reasons for prison agriculture, we're going to have case studies, and they're going to be interactive. So people can listen to podcasts or watch a YouTube video or see images and interact with maps that really enrich, I think, our understanding and help us to see what otherwise is an incredibly opaque system. You know, the prison system itself, unless you're incarcerated or unless you're visiting loved ones or people and you're interacting with people behind bars, it's a system that's hard to really understand. And so our hope is that the story map provides just some insight into what's taking place in a richer way than I think we generally have been able to engage with this topic before. Josh, let me take one minute and remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Joshua Zabika. He is Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of the Prison Agriculture Lab at Colorado State University. I want to get back to the kinds of operations that are taking place in prisons, because you gave us a good overview, livestock, horticulture, vegetable crop, etc. I'm curious to know if any of those products are then brought into the prison kitchen so that prisoners could be rehabilitated with good farm fresh food. Yes, is the short answer. So there are many prisons throughout the United States that use what's grown in gardens, out on farms, in livestock operations, dairies, and so on, to feed the incarcerated population. And so, yes, that is a fairly common reason for why there are agricultural operations. And I guess I would note that the reason for feeding incarcerated people is that it's a cost offset. Right. And it's one of the few ways that prisons can really kind of reproduce the prison population in this gut sense. And at the same time, be able to say that incarcerated folks have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. So yes, that food makes its way into different prisons um, throughout the U.S. I guess one of the questions that I have, and this is something that I think others have started to look at like impact justice and their work on feeding incarcerated people is just how much of the overall the weekly calories are served by these gardens and farms versus say Aramark or Compass Group or Sodexo or other large food service providers feeding prison population. And I think it's really the latter that provides the majority of food to incarcerated folks but it is subsidized to some degree by some of these agricultural operations. Well, I was curious to know this because there's money to be made by these big food corporations that provide food to the prison system. Then there's also the money or the profits that are made in the commissary because typically if people aren't getting enough food to eat in the cafeteria, then they depend on the commissary. And the cost of the food that's sold in the commissary is exorbitant. So 
it's a balancing act, isn't it, about what the official prison officers can do in terms of how much of the food can be produced and served inside the prison versus how much of their budget is dedicated to lining the pockets of these big food corporations. Right. And it's going to vary from place to place. But one of the other pieces to all of this that I've been starting to think about is who else is profiting off of these agricultural operations. And what I'm thinking about is an agricultural industrial complex. If you have all of these states with agricultural operations, they require various kinds of inputs and machinery. And I've started to dig around into several states, including Florida, and digging up contracts that the state has with various businesses to provide, say, tractors or tillers to provide seed and fertilizer. And in different states, millions of dollars every year are going to these companies to support these agricultural operations behind bars. And so it's not just these big food companies that are providing food that are profiting off of it, but you have this other piece of, I guess, the industrial complex that is profiting off of this that's incredibly hidden and that I think we rarely think about as one of the tentacles that profit from the prison system. And that is just one piece of it. The other piece of it is you have prison industries throughout the country that are producing agricultural products for sale. And that's actually a revenue-generating strategy to, again, support the cost of incarceration. And so there's that side of it. And then the other side of it is in the case of Arizona, there's convict leasing taking place. And you have companies directly profiting off of um, nearly free labor supply. So in the case of Hickman's Farm in Arizona, many prisoners are leased there every year to support this large egg operation down in the southwest. So there's many people that are profiting off of this system. Wow. Well, I was going to say it would only be a percentage of the food that was being produced, I'm guessing, that would be available to the prisoners to eat. And then, as you brought up, that food is then going out and being sold to the public, and it's very difficult to track where that food goes. Yes, that's correct. And I think that's one of the, the more difficult parts of trying to understand this system is that a lot of departments of corrections and states are reticent to share that information. Right. And even if they were to share it, and this is true of industrial food production more broadly, you can have various commodities going to one buyer and getting all mixed together. And so then being able to trace, say, milk or meat or grain becomes nearly impossible. Right. Well, you mentioned in the food and carcerality paper how there was this similarity between our farms and our prisons and how they are both located in rural areas that you really don't see from the road, these hidden operations that are happening, and we know very little about it. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting from the Prison Agriculture Lab site is that you've got a satellite image gallery. And wow, I'm assuming that those images are all the entire prison complex 
rather than the prison complex plus the outside community. Is that correct? Right. So each of those prisons that are shown are the, the exact facilities where there's agricultural activities of some kind. And so there are two images. The one that's zoomed in that gives you a sense of the actual architecture of the prison or the facility and then the larger landscape within which it's embedded. I wanted to zoom in even more to see what exactly was going on in these different plots, but also to have some sort of diagram to show the viewer what is happening in these different spaces, just to further pull back the curtain and find out what's really going on behind the facade of corrections. Yeah, and our goal is ultimately to help people to pull all of these pieces together. So the the data set that we've been building upon which that gallery is a product will be open access and made available to the public who can dive much more deeply into individual facilities and see what's going on. And in addition to that, we're building out a map right now that provides all of that information. So you could look at a facility and see, okay, they have an apiary, they have gardens, they have an orchard. And then visually, one could start to kind of see where those operations are taking place. I should note one of the challenges is to actually visualize all of this stuff. Right. You, know, you can't get very close to many correctional facilities without causing a problem for yourself, perhaps others. And <laughs> so this is an approximation and albeit an aerial approximation, which has its own visual complications. But I guess all of that aside, I think it is important to start to put these pieces together so that we can understand more what's going on. And our hope, honestly, is, you know, we're a collaborative and we want to continue to work with anybody who wants to dig more deeply into this topic and these questions. And I think by first literally mapping what's going on, that one could then start to ask more questions and learn more details about these specific sites. And so that's really our hope is that people can go where people live. They can look, okay, what's in my backyard? How can I understand a little bit more about what's going on here? And so this is a first step. It's a fabulous first step. And then if you had really good drone-like capability, you could see, huh, here comes a truck. Where is the truck taking that food? And you could really start tracing. But as you say, I would imagine that just as we have ag-gag laws, I suspect that if you haven't already, you might be getting some phone calls from representatives in different states who don't like what you're doing. Yeah, that could happen. In my case, personally, I haven't experienced that. But in any kind of work where one attempts to pull back the curtain on a powerful institution, you face the possibility of blowback or repression. And there's a long-standing history of those kinds of practices in the United States. And, and so this is why I think doing this work in community and and being mindful just about how you present information is really important. And being honest, though, at the same time with our investigative work, that transparency is important and the public has a right to know, especially when we're talking about the fact that millions of people are incarcerated in this country and millions and millions and millions more have been impacted, whether it's the families or loved ones of incarcerated people. And so I think the public has a right to know this information. 
I agree, especially when tax dollars are supporting it. And so we do have a right. We have a vested interest. We don't have that many more minutes left. Is there anything that you want to make sure our listeners know about your work? I guess just really broadly, I think it's critical to start thinking about the connections between food and carcerality. And carcerality being those ideologies and means of social control and surveillance that are so ubiquitous in society. And I think bringing that kind of lens to the study of food and food systems can help us to see what needs to be dismantled or or challenged in a different kind of way. And clearly that kind of analysis intersects with problems of racial inequality, class inequality, and all kinds of other inequalities. And so my hope is not only are people looking at prison agriculture, but using it as a lens to understand more broadly these systems of inequality, and that it's not just about food, but food can be this means by which to rethink our relationships to each other. Exactly. I know you've also spoken about land reform being critical in this equation. Did you want to say anything about that? I guess the only thing I would note is when you think about how much land is owned by the state to incarcerate people, and how many people want to be on the land and and, and in communion with nature and growing food and community, and and how hard it is to purchase land currently if you want to be a farmer, especially young and aspiring farmers or farmers that have been historically disadvantaged, that ownership of so much land by the state to incarcerate people seems to be a site for intervention and Mm. and reimagining how we can use a public resource to heal each other and to take care of each other instead of harming each other and repressing each other. Well, your paper of Food and Carcerality from Confinement to Abolition is excellent, and it brings forth many of the points that you've mentioned. And I think it's wonderful for us to think about this and be talking about it to understand how do we legitimize such harsh punishment and how are we truly rehabilitating people I'm concerned about people who might be working on prison farms, but are denied access to the nourishing food that is produced there. I know in in my state, there is a prison that the prisoners work in the fields, but all of that food is dedicated to the food pantry, and the prisoners don't get to eat it. Yeah, and that's something that we have found in our research is really common in several states in the Midwest, and it's a cruel irony. It is. When you consider the fact that you have all these folks that are growing this food and they don't get to directly benefit from it. And yeah, it's just one of those unsurprising aspects of the prison system. What's interesting is when you listen to a lot of kind of the official statements from departments of correction, they'll say, well, there's therapeutic benefits, people are outside, people are doing something for their community, but they don't stop to ask the kind of question that you're asking, like, well, why don't they get to eat the food? And what do they think about all of this? Would they want to eat the food? Or do they, that's sort of a a way of separating them from the products of their work. Well, I so look forward to looking at the developing story maps and learning more from the people who are living this kind of horrific system. 
Unfortunately, we have to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Joshua Zabika, an associate professor of sociology and director of the Prison Agriculture Lab at Colorado State University. I will provide links to the lab as well as the excellent paper that you wrote. And I just can't thank you enough for pulling back the curtain on this level of exploitation of our labor. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.